Welcome to the Belmont Story Project. I'm Joanna Juvelis, Senior Multimedia Journalist of the Belmont Citizen Herald and Wicked Local Belmont. Today is July 25th, 2018, and I'm conducting this interview in the Claflin Room at the Belmont Public Library. I'm interviewing Dr. David Alper. Dr. Alper has lived in Belmont since 1985. He has been married to his wife, Pam, for 27 years. They have a twin son and daughter, Megan and Adam, who are now 20, and a son, Brian, who is 18 and recently graduated Belmont High School. Dr. Alper has owned Family Podiatry of Belmont in, in Belmont on Oak Avenue, a private practice in his home for 32 years. Dr. Alper has a long list of service to the town of Belmont, including being a town mi meeting member for 31 years but he is most well-known for his service to the town as a member of the Board of Health for 30 years. In this past April election, Dr. Alper would have been running in a race for his three-year seat against newcomer Stephen Fiore, but decided not to run because he had an opportunity to serve on the Board of Trustees of the American Podiatric Medical Association. There are many more things I can say about Dr. Alper, which you will learn during this podcast. Welcome, Dr. Alper. Well, thank you very much. I hope I can live up to that uh, introduction, Joanna. So thank you very much. It's a wonderful opportunity. And I do want to point out to everyone what a great radio voice Dr. Alper has. Oh, well, thank you. And I, he, I can't he take told credit me for that, that. He told me that he used to be on radio at his college back in the day. Yeah, back in the 70s. <laughs> it, uh, a lot longer hair, a lot heavier rock and roll. But yes, I was um, able to I'm going to see if we can get Dr. Alper to, uh, to be on the radio in Belmont a little bit more, maybe some more uh, podcasts. So it's great to have you. We're going to start out with some questions about Belmont, because sure. you have a history in Belmont, living in the town for... How many years since 1985? Well, it's been 30, it's been 32, almost 33 yeah, years. Yeah, a long and time. The wonderful thing is I haven't just lived in Belmont, but I've worked in Belmont. Yeah, you know, you so I've seen it really. Two perspectives. It's two perspectives. It's two different interactions with the citizens, with my neighbors, with my friends. Oh, really? And what, what would you say you like most about living and working in the town of Belmont? Well, it's a unique opportunity to work and live in the same community because the people that come to me as patients Monday through Friday see me shopping in the supermarket or having a cup of coffee somewhere, mm. which means they get to know me a little differently and a little better as their practitioner and as their neighbor. And I get to interact with people that maybe I wouldn't see in the office. It's also a place that I can continue to watch my children grow up, which was a wonderful benefit. I'm a bit of a dinosaur nowadays. Most doctors don't have their office in their home. But when I opened up in 1985, one of the things that attracted me to Cushing Square mm -hmm. is there was quite a few people that did that. You had a dermatologist, Dr. Carrion. Mm -hmm. You had a... Um, uh, D.O., Dr. Brown. There was Dr. Blacklow in the center that worked out of his home. Uh, Lester Abelman, the pediatrician. So this was a very common thing back then for people to have the office on the first floor and live upstairs. And in fact, I took over from somebody who had been there for 44 years as a family physician, Dr. Eli Jacobs. Oh, really? He retired and I moved in. So it was a fabulous opportunity to watch my kids grow up, have lunch with them if I want to. They came running in with their papers. Uh, you know, Daddy, I got an A. 
and if people needed me on the weekends. More than once, the doorbell rang Sunday morning because somebody was going to a wedding and they couldn't get their shoes on without pain. So I figured I saved a couple of marriages that way, too. That's very nice. But at the same time, that that's the, so there are definitely pros and cons to having a business in your home. Absolutely, because the reality is you never get away from it. There were many days, especially in the wintertime, where I never left the physical structure that I actually had to consciously say, you know, I got to get out of this building for a little while. Uh, you have to train yourself to say, okay, I know that the paperwork is downstairs, but I'm home and I'm staying up here. So th there absolutely is pluses and minuses to it. Um, again, people ring your doorbell on a regular basis, um, <laughs> whether the, you want them to or not. Uh, but for me, it's been good. And it also really gave me a chance to really become part of the community here, which is something that I was looking for for myself. So what, what, what would you say you miss about Belmont's past what has changed that you wish could go back to the way it was? I think the biggest word I'd use is involvement. When I first came to Belmont, elections were tumultuous things to say the least. There were very few that were not contested. There were coffees, there were signs, there, there, there were activities. And the League of Women Voters Night went on for hours because the stage was filled with people. It was very common to have 16, 18 people running for the 12 town meeting member slots. And virtually every seat, including the one that I ran for, was a contested seat in town-wide positions. Mm -hmm. But it was more than that. One of the first things I did when I came to town is I joined Belmont Kiwanis. Uh, most of your listeners aren't going to know what I'm talking about because it's been gone for over 20 years. And yet when I joined it, it had over 40 members, you know, mostly business people in the community. Uh, we used to meet in the VFW Hall, have a nice catered dinner, have tremendous fun, and contributed a lot to the community. We were the ones that painted the flagpole in front of this library. We used to really? hold dinners down at the old Met State Hospital. We were involved in the same way that Rotary and Lions Club. And the point of the story is that people in the town found a variety of different ways to be involved to improve where they lived and to make it more where they lived. I don't think you see that as much anymore. The uh, community organizations, Kiwanis is gone. Uh, I'm not sure Rotary is still around. It's gone. Yeah, so there we go. Chamber of Commerce too. Chamber of Commerce is gone. And these things disappear because of lack of interest and activity in the citizens of the town. Why do you think that happens though? Do you think people just get too busy with work? I think part of it is people are busier in different ways. Certainly you have a lot more two-income families than you used to have. But I also think it's a little different motivation of why people come to Belmont. You know, back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, people moved here because of the community, because they, they wanted to be near the city and yet not in a city. Uh, the main motivation for people coming to town nowadays is the schools. And that's certainly not a bad thing, except where's the motivation to, Im to improve or maintain your town services? And there isn't any. What the motivation is, is to get your child the best education they can. Certainly a fabulous motivation. Uh, but it doesn't, you know, they're going to expect that the services will be provided, things will be done. And it doesn't necessarily have to involve them. And obviously, we're speaking in generalities. There still are some wonderful younger people that are getting involved, but they're few and far between. You know, we just talked about expanding the Board of Selectmen from three to five. And one of the biggest arguments against it is we have difficulty getting three people to run you know, one at a time. Right. And they wanted more diversity running. Well, I would maintain that nobody's ever stopped anybody from running. I think the lack of diversity is because of the lack of interest 
or commitment to it. And I think that's really a shame because this town really survives mm -hmm. on people getting involved. Uh, and it was one of the joys of living here back in the 80s and the 90s. I mean, I used to so look forward to Tuesday nights with the Kiwanis meetings, not only because we helped the town, but because it was just a group of people from the town that just had a commonality there. I'm sorry to hear that. Are you involved in the Lions Club at all or any other town? Yeah, I'm not. You know, my time has passed a little bit with it. I did join um, Rotary in Watertown for a while, which is kind of where Belmont drifted over. To be honest with you, uh, that didn't work for me simply because they had lunch meetings, and I'm usually seeing patients this time of day. Uh, I've worked with the Lions a little bit. I haven't joined as a member. Um, I'm also, you know, and the Board of Health is a perfect example, kind of on the downward slope a little bit, though I do still keep involved. I don't know if you could go back and create these organizations again. I think that, you know, society, and this is obviously isn't just Belmont. I mean, you see this across the spectrum in society in general as far as um, diminished involvement. I mean, other organizations, I, for instance, I'm president of the American Diabetes Association here in New England. We are down 25% in our membership. Why? You know, so I, I don't know how you turn that around. It, it really truly may just be a societal thing. Yeah, I think you're right. Now, tell me what your favorite, I think I know the answer to this question, but tell me what your favorite Belmont event or tradition is. Is currently? Wow. Um, well, something from the past that's still current. Something from the past that's still current. Well, I mean, I really enjoy Town Day, and I, you know, I find that that to me is an opportunity for really all walks coming to the center. You know, it's certainly geared more towards the young families, but that's a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. My heart, of course, goes to the Pace and Park concerts. That's what I thought yeah. you were going to say. Well, I wasn't going to give you an easy one. Like that. <laughs> but, you know, Tommy Olson has just created such an incredible gift for this town and keeps it going. And in fact, uh, I just spoke to her a couple of weeks ago saying, my God, Tommy, you've got to get an heir apparent because you can't do this forever, though. She just might. <laughs> <laughs> you know, again, it's it's a simple Wednesday night music fest. It's just kids running around. It's senior citizens. You get people that are brought in from um, Belmont Manor. We have some group homes here, and these folks are brought in. Different parts of the community that would never be in the same space. And again, it's just a wonderful commonality. doesn't cost anything. I mean, some of the meals that people lay out are incredible, so people really take it seriously. Uh, I hope it goes on forever. I, I really do. And as your listeners may have seen in other things, it saved the green space in the town, you know, which is the other wonderful legacy. Cause well, why don't you tell, tell a little bit of the history there? Sure. That's easy. So, of course, uh, there used to be an elementary school there, mm -hmm. Payson Park Elementary School, uh, the first of several schools that burned down. Huh. And so it was an empty space, but the playground equipment survived. And so there was still, you know, playgrounds, so the kids would still go and play there. The town was eyeing it as a piece of property to sell, obviously a very valuable piece of property that could have been developed for homes. Right. There were two women, Tommy Olson and Linda Oates, who lived very near the, the park, and they really wanted to save this as a park for that part of the community. And so they did kind of a Gandhi-like protest where it was extremely passive. Rather than getting petitions and slamming their shoes on tables, they simply just kept making it more and more a park. So they raised a few dollars to plant more trees and to put in benches and to put events there. And Tommy came up with the idea of a weekly concert. Well, the more that people treated it as a park, 
the less likely the town was going to take it away and put houses on mm. it. And the result is, is 28 years later, we still have a park. We now have new playground equipment, thanks to the highway department and the fire department, Dave Frizzell in particular, Dave Sr., um, who volunteered their time and efforts for putting it in. Because my department condemned the old stuff because it was full of lead paint. Although there was something that you actually kept. Well, yes, that's true. I, I did buy... There was an old cement turtle that weighs about 700 pounds that my kids used to love to climb on. And when they were getting rid of it, I went to the town and said, I want this. And they said, well, we can't give it to you, so we'll charge you a dollar. So I gave him a buck, and I got Dave Frizzell to get a backloader to put it onto a trailer. And it's now living very happily up in Maine. And when That's, I show you have pictures, a vacation home it has a vacation home. And when I show pictures of it to kids here in the town that are now my kids' age, 18, 20, they all remember climbing on the turtle. So did that have peaceful. lead paint? It did. It doesn't anymore. Oh, um, you deleted it. We deleted it and repainted it, and it lives very nicely with a beautiful view of a main lake. That's really nice. Happy That's ending. Really great. I'm glad to hear it found a nice home because I don't know where it would have ended up. Well, well, let's move on to uh, talking about your th- three decades as a Board of Health Director. What would you say stands out in your mind as the biggest issues or even the biggest issue you had to deal with in your 30 years? Well, I know there were many, but there maybe were there's many. one that was really big that stands out in your mind. Well... Individual issues are one thing, but you know, you know, isolated incidences because we had things with cats and llamas and, and sinkholes and God knows what. But if you're asking about a general topic, I would throw back at you there were two, and that was smoking and the cleanliness of restaurants. Sm- you know, I am extremely proud of the boards that I worked on, that Belmont was always, always ahead of the curve when it came to smoking education and smoking regulation. Mm -hmm. We were the first town in the Commonwealth to ban vending machines for cigarettes. We were the second one in the Commonwealth to raise the selling age. And as your listeners probably are hearing, the state is now looking to make it 21 across. We've been 21 for several years now. Yes. Uh, we've done stings for as long as I can remember, unfortunately. And you reported on it with four people fell through the cracks this time. But yeah. we've been keeping an eye on it from there. Our education processes, uh, we just have constantly, constantly, and of course, the, the latest with the marijuana regulations, which to me is kind of mm-hmm. the next stage of the cigarettes. As far as the restaurant goes, one of the, the little mantras that I always had when I served is that I needed to be able to look people in the eye in Belmont and say, it is safe to eat there. You know, can't comment on the quality of the food, but I can say that you're going to get a safe meal, you're not going to get sick. And when I first came on the board, that was really kind of loosey-goosey a little bit. It's certainly not that people didn't care, but the problem was if somebody wanted to open a restaurant, they needed five different departments to talk to, and there was no way that the departments were communicating with each other. They obviously didn't avoid each other, but Mm -hmm. things didn't move through. Over the years, and I give Donna Moultrip, our our old health director, a tremendous credit for this, is they really formed a consortium. So that mm-hmm. you've got fire, you've got police, you've got the, the development office, you've got the plumbing office if they're involved. All passing papers amongst themselves to make sure that all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. Mm-hmm. So that when the restaurant finally opens up, we know everything is in place. Yeah. And then we took a step probably I'd say about three, four years ago, where rather than utilizing the staff that we had here for inspections, we actually hire an outside consultant whose sole skill set 
is to inspect restaurants. And they give us back the reports. It's actually usually an individual. Um, and if anything is egregious, then we get involved. Mm-hmm. This was wonderful for multiple reasons because this person brought a skill set to the town. It freed up the staff to be able to do things that they were trained to do. And there was a consistency. So we didn't have to worry about, you know, we've got what? You know, 82 Chinese restaurants here in town. You know, you want to make sure that each one of them is treated fairly and equally. Well, someone who has no vested interest in the town at all, because this gentleman comes from who knows where, you're going to get consistency in there. And then if we run into a problem, this is when the staff will come in. So I think that, you know, looking back, that was a really laborious time but a good result of really bringing everything under there what would you say is the most common violation that uh, restaurants make well the problem is of course that when business is down for some reason cleanliness goes down because cleanliness is expensive you know whether you're bringing in outside services whether you're paying for exterminators and supplies now when you when you say cleanliness what like give me an example of what need what should be Clean. Well, what for do you a, inspect? Well, well, we inspect everything. But, I mean, for instance, there's supposed to be a hand-washing sink. That's a sink that's dedicated to the staff to be able to wash their hands in the kitchen. It doesn't work well if there's a mop sitting in it or if there's some, you know, knives in it or if there isn't soap and papers over it. I know it sounds silly, but we consider that a critical um, violation because if the soap isn't by the sink, you're not washing your hands the way you're supposed to. So it's really as simple as that. And again, it sounds like a silly thing. So that's where, you know, it's something along those lines. Temperature of foods, we need to make sure that the people that work there understand that foods need to be, hot food has to be in a certain range, cold food has to be in a certain range. You know, you can't leave things sitting on the counter for, you know, they cook a pizza and they're selling it a slice at a time. Well, if you cook it at 11.30 and you serve it at 12, it's fine. By 3 o'clock, probably not such a great idea. And so it's our job to educate and to also make sure that there's somebody in the restaurant at all time that is served safe, that is certified by the program of the town, that teaches them these things so that they are aware of things like food handling, temperature, packaging. I mean, we've had, well, I can give you one instance because the restaurant hasn't been here for a very long time, but there okay. was a, there was a Chinese restaurant in, in Cushing Square, many may remember, that always gave us a bit of a problem. And I was in my office one day and the health director came running down to my office in the middle of patients, Dr. Alper, we, I've got to close this restaurant and they're just not listening to me. What's going on? Well, apparently um, they prepped the food that they served on the main floor in the basement. Oh. Which it well, you know, maybe okay, maybe not okay. You know, it had a ceiling, it had tables. The problem is, is that the sewer pipe of Trapella Road was backing into the restaurant, and they had three inches of raw sewage water in the restaurant. And the owner's answer to that was, is that he gave his workers boots and told them to go back down and continue preparing the food. Oh, that's gross. You know, it is gross, and it's not something you as a, as a customer would know. Um, you would think that's sort of commonsensical, but there you go. And so needless to say, we closed the place immediately. We just padlocked and said, everybody go home. Um, So that's a little extreme, but that's the type of thing that you run into. Not so much anymore. Uh, We did more before. Uh, And it took quite a while, as you can imagine, to make that restaurant okay. And it did reopen again. So, oh, it did. Okay. Oh, absolutely. But it's not open anymore. <laughs> no, no, out of business. In fact, now it's a yoga studio, so okay. so, so okay. everybody's happy as far as that goes. Um, I know that there's a lot 
of history with the Board of Health and the Underwood Pool because I was lucky enough to see your scrapbook that you've kept, you know, your wife helped you keep over the years, and there were a lot of headlines about the Underwood Pool having to be closed, may not open. Can you talk about some of the history with that? Well, I will tell you that the most reluctant thing I did every year was assign the variance on that pool because we knew that the pool really wasn't quite as healthy as it should be. I mean, it wasn't a, you know an egregious danger, but between the constant fight to keep the quality of the water, um, I'll tell you, I made a lot of business off the bottom of that pool because people were cutting their feet all the time on the, on right. the chipping uh, plaster. The problem with the pool is that, and I think, again, your listeners know, it's one of the oldest uh, public pools in the country, if not the oldest, is that originally it had a sand bottom to it. It was a private pool owned by the Underwood family. Years and years and years ago, they put a cement bottom to it. But the problem is, because the water table in this area is so high, rather than the water leaking out of the pool as time went by, the water underneath the shell would heave and cause the cement to crack, and the groundwater would leach into the pool, bringing God knows what with it. Right. And that's why we had such a difficult time controlling it. And, you know, God bless the recreation department folks who monitored the chemicals and they would test it three, four, five times a day. And we kept logs and et cetera, et cetera. And in <laughs> fact, the reason, one of the reasons this pool cost as much as it did, because they didn't want to keep it in the same place, is they had to pay to figure out a way to elevate the entire pool a bit to raise it above the groundwater so that the heaving wouldn't occur and the cracking would happen again. So it, you know, and it was really hard, Joanna, because, you know, our focus was so strong on the fact that there's few things for kids to do in town as it is over the summer to take away a focus for the community. And all you have to do is look down the street to see how popular it is was always something we were reluctant to do. On the other hand, once again, we need to be able to look at the town and say, yes, this is a safe thing to do. And there were absolutely times that we closed it and said, you know, the bacteria is just too high. We have to close it a couple of days, shock it. Uh, once or twice we drained it and started over again um, so oh, wow. that we could say, yeah, I mean, it, it just, it was a constant, constant battle. Um, I think we did a pretty good job and I think the rec department did a really good job at, at trying to mm-hmm. keep it going. But every spring that variance would come across the table and every year we had the same discussion of, you know, should we really put our names on this? You know, <laughs> Is it really okay? Um, well, luckily, we have a new a new pool now. And no problems. To the best of my knowledge, from the time I served, we have not heard of any cracks coming through, which is where the problem was. Oh, yes. Now, looking back at the three decades um, on the Board of Health, what accomplishments are you most proud of? That, well, that you, you know, you helped Well, accomplish? number one was the building of the department. When I first got on the board, it was a two- person, well, two and a half. We had a secretary, we had an assistant director, and we had a director. That was it. Over the course of my years, and obviously I didn't do any of this unilaterally. This is this was a joint effort, but we brought on the animal control officer, which has been an amazing contribution, not only to our department, but the town. We brought on the veterans agent. We brought in a, a town nurse. We brought in, a, for lack of a better term, a social worker. Uh, so th- as departments saw needs and as individual parts of departments were left in between, we literally scooped them up and put them on the umbrella of public health. 
And it's worked out magnificently because the result is with all of this as one group, we can then disseminate public health information. So we can give information to seniors. We can give information about opioids. We can give information about mosquitoes, you know, whatever the case may be, because we now have in this office, and they all sit together so they can work together, uh, we can disseminate this type of information that they need. I think if there's nothing else that I look back at being able to look at that office and see where we came from has been a tremendous accomplishment. Uh, I'm glad I went out with the marijuana regs. You know, whether you are for or against marijuana, and as I've said many times, uh, the Board of Health has no horse in that race, this town's going to be safe. If, in fact, marijuana does wind up being sold here in the town, it's going to be safe. It's going to be controlled. It's going to be overseen. And I'm very proud about the fact that we're still the only town in the Commonwealth that raised the purchase age up to 25. Well, my question regarding that is, with the recent violations for the tobacco regulations, where um, some stores, four stores, were caught selling to kids who weren't actually 21, yep. do, um, do you think that that could happen with the marijuana? Marijuana is going to be a lot tougher because the state, first of all, is going to have a piece of this as well. The actual physical plant is going to be different. It's going to be a double door system just to get in, just like a jewelry store, except even more so. Mm -hmm. So in order to get into through the first door, you're going to have to hold up an ID to a camera. Once you're in the little box, then you need to communicate to the people more. You're not even allowed to bring your children in if you just have a toddler with you. Okay, it's really just you. Well, not you, of course. Um, <laughs> but so, and there's going to be somebody in the way of some type of an officer within the store at all times. So it's going to be a lot higher um, wall to leap. Now, can it happen? Of course, everything could possibly happen. But again, I think that you're going to not only be having the town, but the state overseeing this. And I think that double digit is going to make a difference. And again, I think upping it to 25, you know, a 19-year-old can look like a 21-year-old. A 19-year-old looking like a 25-year-old, eh, maybe not quite so easily. And as I, of now, is Belmont the only town that has the age as minimum To 25? the best of my knowledge, that's correct. We're the only ones that have bumped it up. Were you surprised at how town, we town meeting went down in this past May with the um, the outcome of the vote on the marijuana? The passion didn't surprise me on both sides. So that the fact that it, be, it was a, a cause celeb to these folks, that didn't surprise me at all. It went from opt out completely to allow uh, two, two. two, up to two retail marijuana stores for adult use and that's what passed. Right, and then they're going to vote to see if they ban the others, the testing, the growing, et cetera. How do you think that will go? Well, do you think first of all, the, the reason we got here is I still think there was a lot of misunderstanding as far as what people were voting on, because the truth is the election that we're going to have, I think September 25th, That's right. um, doesn't accomplish anything, because we could simply just do that through a bylaw. So I think it's unfortunate we're going to spend $10,000, $12,000 for an election that's really not going to do much. Uh, keeping it down to two is something we could do anyway, because the number of stores was based on the number of retail liquor establishments. Since really? we Yes. So since we, you needed to have the equivalent of a minimum of 20% of not restaurants, just, you know, package stores. I know we hate that phrase. So we have four, so we needed to have a minimum of one. So keeping it as a minimum of two, we could have done easily anyway. 
Um, I think there was a lot of confusion, partially because I think there was a lot of passion. I think that people are going to find that this is going to settle in, just like liquor did. I was around when Belmont was no longer a dry town, and people were very passionate about that. They liked the fact that the town was dry, and, you know, there were some people that thought we were going to turn into River City, other people, you know, tripping over drunks in in Cushing Square. Um, (laughs) And obviously none of that had happened, and for that matter, we have some excellent high-end stores in town, which is what I think most people expected, as well as some, some fine restaurants, which is what people were hoping for. I think marijuana will settle down a little bit more as people see that it's not as fearful. And the one factor, and I, I'm actually happy to hear it, is people were concerned about the kids. And my response to that is that because we are going to be having it but controlling it, we can collect that 3% sales tax. That's money that is earmarked directly to drug education or anti-drug education and responses. So we can use that money to hire another officer for the schools. We can put out anti-opioid programs. We can put Narcan around the town. This is money that we need. What about maybe education for about, um, you know, vaping? Maybe Absolutely. Be doing that. Anything abusable. We already have some. Vaping is a big problem, as you know, at the high school. Very high much school so. High school-age children in all towns, not just Belmont. That's right, though it is absolutely here in Belmont. You know, one of the advantages of having high school kids is I get a, a little bit of insight of what's going on in there. And you're 100% correct, you know, and we are working on it at this point to some extent. The school nurses, of course, work with us directly with it, which is, you know, tremendously helpful. And the best thing of all is the selectmen and their divine wisdom are, are putting an off officer in the middle school, you know, because it's worked so successfully at the high school. Right. You know, not just for vaping, but just, you know, wrong behavior, period. I think that's going to be a tremendous uptick, because when are these kids starting? They're starting in middle school, sadly. By the time they're at high school, these habits, good or bad, are, are already pretty much in there. But if sad. we can get them when they're 12, 13, 14 years old, that's what's going to really make the difference. So I'm really happy that the chief and the selectmen saw that this was the right way. It's, you know, it, it, there's no downside to it to me. And finding the money, you know, God bless Patrice, the town administrator for finding it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a huge win for the town as far as Didn't you also help in your final days uh, on the Board of Health? Didn't you also help get the youth commission back can you tell us a little bit about that so we started a youth commission oh probably about 15 years ago and it was fabulous and again it was a simple response to the fact that there wasn't a whole lot for kids to do in the town and it's, and when i say kids i'm talking about your everyday kid i mean certainly somebody that's a star of the football team has got a lot to do but we were looking just for average joe kid so we formed the Youth Commission underneath the Health Department. Um, it was a, a selectman appointed board, and I was fortunate enough to be chair of four of the six years that existed. We had money so that we were able to hire a youth coordinator. And it was not just taking them on skiing trips. It was also, you know, a drop-in center that we used the, um, the Bur- not the Burbank, the... Um, was it the Butler? Butler, thank you. I'm blanking on it. Uh, we yeah, took over the Butler School. school. <laughs> thank you. And... We used to get 50 to 75 kids every night that this thing was open. It was fabulous. Unfortunately, budget constraints being what they were, it was extremely vulnerable. And when the youth commissioner stepped down because she was actually going, she graduated school, she was a graduate student, and she was part-time, that money was vulnerable and it was cut. And it has simply not happened for years. 
Thank God that that Selectman Dash made it as kind of a campaign promise, and he followed through with it, Mm -hmm. and the others went along with it. Mark Palillo has been committed to the kids of this town as long as I've known him, and Tom Caputo, I'm sure, is right there with them. So it's going to be wonderful, and my sense is it's going to be focused Again, at middle school kids, by the time a kid is 16, 17, 18 years old, you know, they're not looking for a drop-in center. They got a driver's license, they're gone. But it's these core kids, it's the middle school age, it's the the, the late preteen and and early teen years that we really want to give them good choices of what to do with their free time, you know, and whether it's a place to drop in, whether it's an activity. You know, one of the other things that we did that was so simple and I was so proud of is we used to take over the movie theater on early release days, free. Mm -hmm. And we'd show a movie for the elementary kids and a movie for the middle-aged kids. You'd get 100 kids there. You know, and the the guy that owns the theater, you know, he's just the most wonderful person on the planet because he would open up the popcorn machine for free. Oh, and he'd yeah. give the kids popcorn and he'd charge the town like practically nothing to take over the yeah, theater. And, nice. you know, kids walking around town with nothing to do on an early release day or with their friends focused in a safe environment. It's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. And so that's the type of things that we're hoping to bring I back hope again. So. Me I do too. Hope so. Me too. I'm watching. We have time for a few few more questions. Um, I would like you to tell our listeners about your Santa days. <laughs> well, okay, so the secret's out. I hope nobody under the age of ten is listening. So when I was a Kiwanian, the Kiwanis used to donate candy canes to the elementary school, kindergarten, first, and second grade, as a little celebration, and they used to help with singing, and they needed a Santa. Now, I'm a nice man who was raised in a Jewish household, didn't know a whole lot about Santa, (laughs) except what my friends told me, but I loved the idea of it, and they had a suit that I borrowed. I subsequently bought my own, because I wound up (laughs) doing it a lot, and so for about three, four years, I was Santa for kindergarten, first, and second grade, and I have to tell you, it was the highlight of my year because you need no skill set. The suit does it. You walk into the room, and, and again, this wasn't part you of my childhood. You have a good childhood. voice for Santa, too. Well, the ho-hos either would, would thrill them or terrify them. Can I, I did hear s- you do it? Oh, really? Yeah. Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas! Ho, 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 ho! You and, got me. There you go. You're, you're already <laughs> crying. And... It was wonderful, and I would. They'd have a chair waiting for me, and the kids would sit in a semicircle, and we'd sing songs, and I'd give out the candy canes, and they'd sit on my lap. And a byproduct of that is that your other life, the media center, which is fairly new at the time, would bring me on a couple nights before Christmas in my full regala, and I would read "Twas the Night Before Christmas," and then they would open up the phone lines, and the kids could call Santa for last-minute requests. That's now, so nice. It was amazing. And the thing that really helped it is my kids were young. And, of course, we didn't let them watch it because we didn't want them to think Dad was Santa. But I knew all these toys. So I could talk about Transformers or My Little Pony or something because I actually knew what I was talking about. It was the best. Unfortunately, as everybody knows, uh, the schools are now right fully non-denominational. Yes. and. So it no, wasn't no religious holidays anymore. Either. No religious holidays, and certainly, you know, you could have Frosty the Snowman, and I don't look as good in that outfit. <laughs> um, but so it wasn't me, David Alper. It was Santa that unfortunately was retired. I uh, oh. don't know why we stopped it at the media center. Maybe I that's will something. talk to them. About there that. you go. Um, <laughs> you know, and Joanna to extrapolate on it, if I may, for just a minute, it was just another way for me to really kind of slide into the community. I don't think a lot of people knew I did it. 
And that was really okay. You know, I didn't put up a sign, you know, here's the foot doctor being Santa. But it made me feel that there just was another part of the community. And that was one of the wonderful things about Belmont is if you really just wanted to give a little something, the town did it with open arms. And I think they still do to this day. I think that is something that people miss when they don't get involved in the town because it makes the town a little more yours because I can still look at the schools. And I run into kids in their 20s now that remember Santa coming or, you know, when liquor started or when, you know, cigarettes were changed. Um, there's little teeny tiny bits of evidence of how I have affected Belmont. And that's not unique to me. I think that's something that a lot of people, certainly all the guests that have done your blogs, um, can say. And that just makes living here just a little bit mm -hmm. sweeter because it's just something you did. That's very well said. Thank you. So how would you like to be remembered in Belmont? As somebody that really loved the town and did what he could to make it a good place to live. I wasn't born here. I wasn't born in Massachusetts. I'm a Long Island boy, born in Brooklyn. I, I've lived in a variety of parts of the country until I came here. I was a stranger in a town that didn't, you know, necessarily embrace strangers initially. Um, it took me definitely a few years not to be the new kid in town. Uh, but Belmont has given me a home. It's given me a home for my children. It's given me a... a um, a lifestyle. It's also given me earning power so I can support my family. I can't really thank them more than I have, you know, for something that they've done for me. And I think that really is it, that it's just, it, it truly is a home to me. And I hope it continues to, whether I continue practicing or not, I'm certainly not going anywhere. Uh, it was hard to step down off the board of health. I'm sure it because, was. You know, and one of the reasons is that I went deaf because I now don't know a lot about what's going on in town. And well, I just used to keep know. reading my paper. Well, there you go. There you go. What, what are your hopes for Belmont's future? Well, as we talked about earlier, I'd love to see involvement come back in again. I hope that as, as the community continues to grow and change, and it certainly is changing that people see a need to get involved. One of the things that I thought was really great is the Cushing development. There's where I live in my neighborhood. We're not too far away. And there was a group of citizens that were really concerned about what was going on in there. They still are. <laughs> and they still are. But the point of the story is that it is an organized group, as you are aware. And they have email. They have an email list that can contributes to the town, fairly large email list. Mm -hmm. They put out reports. They read every report that Tolbert. They are an amazing watchdog over something that the town is absolutely watching. You know, Glenn Clancy and his merry men are keeping an eye, but there's only so much they can do. And because there was a need, the citizens of the town rose to that need and have created something that has done a tremendous amount of good. You know, and that's just one example. I hope that that type of thing really comes in again and that people realize this new high school, incredible opportunities for citizens to get involved, not only with designing and, and opening up, but this thing's going to need a lot of people to run this thing. And I think sure. that, you know, a more active PTO and et cetera, et cetera. So my hope would be is that people start to get a little um, taste that maybe if they give a little bit more and they'll see some of the pleasures that I had. Well, Dr. Alpo, I want to thank you for coming on the Belmont Story Project. I want to thank everyone for tuning in to the Belmont Story Project. This is a collaboration between the Belmont Public Library, the Belmont Media Center, the Council on Aging, and the Belmont Citizen Herald Wicked Local Belmont. It's, it's um, something that we have been working on and will continue to work on because it is a part of Belmont's history. So... 
Thanks again for coming on. Well, thank you so much, Joanne. I look forward to seeing you again soon.